0: Welcome back to Pink Noise, a show dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who have mined and shined their inner gold. I'm your host, Barry Sherry. Today is promised a conversation with Susan Campbell, PhD. Her list of accomplishments are far too long to mention in this intro, but knowing she's lectured at Harvard, Stanford, and UCLA, and appeared on Good Morning America and CNN News, just to name a few, is enough to make me giddy and perhaps a little starstruck. I'm grateful to my friend, Randy De Rocher, who invited me into Susan's Honesty Salon last year, where in the intimacy of a Zoom room, eight of us got to spend time together every week going deep. I asked Susan at the conclusion of that series if she'd be willing to traverse the topic of authentic living skills with me. And here we are. As you know, I've been reading Getting Real, 10 True Skills to Authentic Living that you wrote some 20 years ago? Yeah. Well, it takes a little while to get
1: a book published, so.
0: I imagine you know a little bit of something about writing a book, given your long list of publications. I keep, I keep learning. When you realized that you had wisdom in you mm-hmm. that you had discovered as part of your truth and your experience of being a human on this planet, what did it take for you to commit your wisdom into writing and go here world, make of this what you will? Like, what was that like? Do, do you remember the catalyst for saying yes? I'd like to answer it with a a bit of the key
1: points that supported me in being able to just speak out into the world without too much inhibition about you know, being criticized or judged because that is something that authors have to deal with is not everybody that uh, reads what you write is gonna agree or like it or, you know so you have to deal with all that stuff. But um, I will say that I had parents who really listened to me, I'll just list them off. I had an eighth grade teacher who said you have a, a flair or a gift for writing. She was just my English teacher. So those you know, little people who mirrored back, and I know this is a big part of what you do in the world, people who mirrored back my strengths. Parents who, who my mother would actually write down stuff that I said, little you know, cute or wise sayings. She thought they were wise, but <laughs> I'm, I'm like three years old, you know. So with that background, and then um, my first, after I got my PhD, my first partial job, I taught in a university, but I also hung up my shingle and I had an office with a psychiatrist and the two of us both had this idea, we're gonna write a book and it was gonna be the first book for both of us. And I was 25 years old. And we said, we're gonna meet before we start seeing clients in the day, we're going to meet and we're just going to listen to each other and talk about our ideas, really hold space for each other. And out of that came his book and my book. My first book was called Expanding Your Teaching Potential. And, and I got reviews, you know, you send it out from people like Carl Rogers and some other well known people. And I remember the question. Carl Rogers has never heard of me he's this famous person I've studied about him in grad school and by damn he he read it I could tell that he actually read it and he wrote a nice endorsement uh, being real specific about some things and so you know little things like that Um, so what but what made me want to write the book to begin with was I truly did feel like I had wisdom at age 25. I did. Oh, confidence. That's what I had. <laughs> I'm not sure it was wisdom, but you know, I had a, I had enough confidence to take what I had learned already in life and put it to paper. And what it was, was a book for teachers because I was teaching at University of Massachusetts School of Education. And I was consulting in schools, like 10 10 year old kids and and the problems that the teachers are having with the students. And so I really understood teachers' issues, school teachers' issues and school administration type issues. So I I wrote a book for teachers, but it was everything that I'd ever learned about group dynamics and psychological healing and psychological development. All, All like a psychology PhD for teachers and um, now it kind of worked. It kind of taught them how to make a more growth-oriented classroom, that sort of thing, because this was the era of humanistic education.
0: What sort of feedback did you get from from peers, from other teachers who were incorporating the wisdom from your book?
1: Well, I, I got I got gigs off it. I got jobs. So they, they must... I don't know if I got actual... I got feedback from colleagues, but I'm trying to remember if I actually got feedback from teachers. Uh, It was so long ago, honestly, I can't remember. But I remember this famous um, educator, George Isaac Brown, who was head of um, psych department at uh, UC Santa Barbara. And he said, this is one of the best books on education of the decade after he read it. So that was pretty nice. Um, But the the fact that you write a book, a lot of times, I'm not sure people read it, but they know your name and then they get, they hire you. And I got such an opportunity to work in school systems and really understand systems from the inside. Yeah. Starting there. And we've all been in school. We all know that it's a very troubled environment. You know, it's hard, difficult environment.
0: Yeah, it is. You quoted praise that came from your mom mm-hmm. from the age of three, yeah. receiving acknowledgements that the way you think is special and what you have to share with the world is special.
1: Yeah. And how yeah.
0: important that Mm-hmm.
1: That was something my parents gave me. They both had that ability to mirror back somebody's strengths to you. And we, in my family, we had a lot of humor too. We also mirrored back each other's uh, weaknesses or flat sides or things that were goofy about each other. But, you know, we had a lot of mirroring back, you know, feedback going on. And and it wasn't a scary thing, you know, whereas a lot of people, they hear feedback. Uh, So um, I have that gift too. And I, I think you have that gift to mirror back people's strengths. I just see somebody and I can just, I just I just want to give them that gift of how I see them. Yeah.
0: So hearing this feedback from Carl Rogers about your first book, mm-hmm. I imagine that that alone is the boost that allows you to keep going, keep growing, keep learning and keep writing and keep sharing. That helps,
1: that helps. Yeah. That- big part of it is knowing there's an audience. I will write for myself. I mean, I did journaling for a lot of years, just get up in the morning and write your thoughts. That, that That's part of being a writer too. So I'll write for myself, but I think it really helps to know you're going to have an audience.
0: And what was one of the lessons from the 10 truth skills that were, was the hardest for you to incorporate, to to practice in your life?
1: Yeah, good question. Probably embracing silence. That's a very complex truth skill actually. On the practical level, that is being willing to finish your sentence and just feel the emptiness as whatever comes out of me perhaps goes into your ears and there's a moment of unknown And that's sort of like a void. So that's one, and and just experiencing that with somebody else, that uncertainty, unknowing, I think that is probably still probably my growing edge to really feel and experience the silence and the connection. Let it be.
0: Hearing that, I'm noticing such a desire for a very long pause.
1: Yeah, I was consciously not going on because I do have a habit of filling the in-betweens. And I. so as I say, I'm still working on that.
0: I imagine that's something I could practice as well. (laughs) I was recently delivering a teaching on empathy and talking about quality listening. Mm-hmm. Listening to listen, not listening to respond. Yeah. And I know for most of my life, I have listened, calculating what I'm going to say next oh, this would be a good way to go or this would be a great question or I wonder if I can now share my story about that thing that their story reminds me of and how much I've come to understand that that's not actually relating.
1: Yeah. It's so good to be aware of your listening patterns. My pattern, (laughs) true confessions, is this frequent pattern is listening, whether I agree or disagree with that, or that kind of thing, whether I feel like this is a person that I I feel easy with, or whether I got to watch out for the person, something like that.
0: Can you say more?
1: Um, do I trust the way they think? I'm assessing that kind of thing. Do I want, do I want to stay engaged or not? So, um, that's a pattern. I'm not saying that that's my true, true self. You know, I am pretty able to listen to just be with you. There are times when I'm in a pattern where let's say I'm not, I'm maybe in a, maybe in a new situation where I don't feel uh, safe or comfortable and I'll, um, I'll go, okay, I'll be, I'll listen to assess.
0: And in that time that you're listening to assess, are you, you're withholding content? You're deciding what this person deserves to know about you? Uh,
1: It's not so much about whether, what I'll disclose. It's more whether I want to spend time with this person. Mm-hmm. Beyond what the present moment is show, you know, showing up with.
0: And in hearing that, I wonder, is time a valuable resource to you?
1: Yeah, back to my childhood. Well, my my early wound was being left alone in the crib. So then I seemed to set my whole life up so that I'm the center of everything. I'm in demand. Everybody wants my time. I went to kindergarten, and I had been alone a lot as a, a kid before kindergarten. And for these partner kid exercises or things. Everybody always kind of wanted to be my partner. And it, 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 it I created a life where I was in so much demand that I began to not, um, so it backfired on me. I began to almost uh, like worry about people using me up.
0: Can you give me some tips on setting boundaries?
1: Yeah, I had a hard time with that when I was um, teaching at UMass. And it seems like so long ago, because it's it's so not an issue now, but let me think: how was it for me? I intended it for probably like you and most people who have issues of saying yes sometimes when you realize later you were too tired or you should have said no, or maybe you were even being codependent, which I was. You first you realize that it's caused. I I realized, okay, it caused me pain, it caused me. Um, to feel tired all the time, as, and to even feel sorry for myself. So I remember speaking at a faculty meeting one time at UMass, and I said, "I feel overworked and underloved." And then another time, I said, "You know, I got to go to the bathroom to get any privacy. You know, the grad students are following me all around, wanting some." You know, I mean, I can remember direct quotes from myself. You know, I was, I was in sad shape. Um, I was always pretty open about my inner experience. It it wasn't like I was afraid of judgment or those normal kinds of, you know, disapproval things. I was more afraid of being used up, I guess. So anyway, boundaries, I knew it was a problem and I knew it was a problem. You know, so I first heard, first I felt myself uh, in a little self-pity and complaining, and then I made it an intention to do better. Um, But finally, what I learned was something I teach now, which is called the Daily Authenticity Inventory. And it basically says, sometimes in the moment when you're asked, "Will, will you come and help me put on a party or whatever, when you're asked something, my initial response will be enthusiastic, oh yes, I want to. But to, to realize that I can redo that. So the authenticity inventory is every night, did I show up for myself? Did I say yes when I really, my true answer was no? When, when was I dishonest about something or other? And so like do a little inventory. And what, what reason did I give myself for not telling the truth? Well, I wanted that friend to like me, stuff like that. And then the next question I ask myself is, would it be, oh, what would my true answer be? Gee, I can't help you with your party. Uh, And then if it's appropriate, could I go back and speak to that person and revise it? And that's in in the book, Getting Real, that's the uh, true skill revising.
0: Oh, I think I remembered reading that one. That's the going out and coming in again, coming in again. And that's the best tool for learning
1: boundaries, because you can't always know exactly what you want or don't want in the moment sometimes, because, you know, until you really get mastery of all your patterns. So you realize later on, I was in a pattern. So I go back and I say, you know, I wanted so much to be a good friend. But when I thought about it later, I I realized I've got too many things on my plate. What I can give you is this, but I can't do that.
0: Going out and coming in again was a a game changer, reading that chapter, reading about that true skill. Mm -hmm. I I felt there was inherent permission Mm -hmm. for me to reflect on the interaction that I had with someone. Or maybe I offered myself in some way that um, maybe didn't feel great. Mm -hmm. Or actually, more to the point, I said something. And then, like, I walked away and I went into another room and I replayed what I said. Mm -hmm. And I imagined how the other person might have heard it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then this wave of like compassion and, oh gosh, I need to clarify. I'd really like to go over that statement again and come back in and say, you know, when I just said that a minute ago, I'm wondering how that landed because I heard this thing in my head and I just want to clarify what I really felt or meant was, and I've practiced it.
1: That's beautiful.
0: It's so healing and it's so mm-hmm. empowering and it, and it's humbling at the same time. Like, hey, man, I'm, I'm just practicing being human right here. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: And, and I, I want to make sure that you're not chewing or spinning on mm-hmm. something I said that might be having a negative effect on you. And it could even be that I planted a seed in, in their unconscious mm-hmm. that might add up later to be something bigger than it needs to be and it's and it's almost like i want to dig up that weed right now yeah before it grows that true skill is is i think about it as as pulling a weed out of my garden before it can grow and take over
1: beautiful i like how you said that and you know now one of my patterns sometimes is to say no too quickly and, but mostly it comes out with my um domestic partner peter, and um <laughs> and I'll quickly catch myself I'll go, oh wait, I need to pause and ask you tell me more about why you think it's a good idea to um do that project in the on the house it's usually about house projects you know? <laughs> and i'll I'm, I'm really finally getting pretty good at catching it right in the moment, <laughs> yeah.
0: The true skill about asserting what you want. When you were telling me the story about boundaries Uh and your process of checking in with yourself and doing the daily authentic inventory. Mm -hmm. When I was reading, learning how to assert what you want and don't want, I thought, oh, I know how to ask for what I want. Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty good at that and then i did the self assessment quiz in the book yeah and you may have seen me post about that recently i thought because it was so again i use the word humbling mm-hmm. to realize that i care so much about not disappointing other people mm-hmm. that i will bend you know my needs in service of being with someone else or being in the moment with someone else, mm-hmm. and especially the question: um, If you ask for what you want and you get a no, yeah. you know, do you have the courage to try again? And you had said that was one of the the harder ones for you. It
1: was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was about sex in my second marriage. Yeah, it was. It was a tough one, but I uh, I wrote about it in the book. How I decided to keep asking, even if I was, you know, 50-50 or more, the the answer would be no. I told him I was going to do that.
0: So you set the expectation up accordingly in the relationship that this is a need I have. Mm -hmm. And because it's a need I have, I'm going to practice using my voice. So I don't have resentment later, or I don't have some self-hatred later for not owning my experience. This is what I want.
1: Yes. And and it's a pattern I have of giving up too soon. And I want to let you know that I'm consciously working on the pattern, the pattern of, well, I, I asked once or twice and the answer was no. So I'm never going to ask again. That's what I'm calling the pattern because I had that pattern. It's uh, It's gone now too. You know, you work on these things long enough. And the, you know, the big answer to anything about this is you you have the intent to change it. And it takes a while to actually change it.
0: What I love about this example, I love it so much. In the book, when you talked about repeating the ask, when the desire was alive for you, you would make the ask. And if I remember correctly, what happened over time is that your partner got to see and experience you and your desire Mm -hmm. and him not either being able or being willing to meet you there. Mm -hmm. And it became more of a organic unfolding of seeing how you were on different pages. Mm -hmm. And my impression of that Mm -hmm. as the outside reader Mm -hmm. is that that might equal a less aggressive or a less friction-oriented dissolving of the relationship, that that it created a place of mutual understanding of where and why there isn't compatibility. Mm -hmm. And when a person suppresses what they desire and they keep it as their own pain, And they don't speak what they want again and again to their partner until one day it's too much. And they're like, I can't take it. I'm leaving. And the partner goes, but wait, like I didn't get to try harder or something like that. Yeah, right. And so what I see in your example is you're giving your partner the gift of revealing yourself over and over again so that you don't get to the place where, but wait, I didn't get to try harder because you gave them a dozen opportunities over the course of a year of asking to show up for you or for the union.
1: Yes, and he got to show his vulnerability and his sorrow about not, not, not being as attracted to me as he wanted to be, you know? I mean, he liked me, but there was something off in the attraction thing. And, um, and we, we got to be very vulnerable with each other. And we were friends when we um, parted. We stayed friends, we, we still correspond. We met up with each other about uh, five years ago <laughs> after 40 something years,
0: yeah. What do you think it takes to be vulnerable and to be willing to do what you did?
1: That's a good question. To want to, to want to be known, uh, so because to, to, do I really want to be own, known? Uh, to even know myself is somewhat vulnerable. So it takes humility, uh, uh, you know, not having a fixed identity. That oh, this is this is who you've got to be to be a worthy human being. I have a natural humility. I don't have this unrealistic idea of, I have to be great or perfect or any, anything in order to be a worthy human being. I've sort of got that one handled from the beginning. So maybe I was lucky there, but, but it, it boils down to humility and being okay with not being perfect and seeing flaws in myself and revealing those. Um, I guess if, If you didn't get that when you were younger, you're gonna have to work work toward that. Um, Be prepared to reevaluate what you were taught, your conditioning about what you have to be to be a worthy and good human being. Because so many of us were taught the wrong thing. I happen to be taught pretty good things
0: be willing to question your conditioning. Yeah.
1: And like, if you catch yourself with, oh, I shouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have this weakness. Um, (laughs) Like, take a look at that. So what, what do I have to be to be worthy of love and self-respect? And, um, then you look at well, I love that other person, and they have weaknesses and they stumble. How come I can't love myself? Now we're getting into the territory of triggers and core fears. That I have those too, or I had you know I had them. They don't cry out for attention anymore, really. But you know those. Core fears like fear of abandonment, fear of not being good enough, you know, f- fear of rejection, fear of being invisible. Um, we've all got something like that. And so if we can go, OK, I got that faulty idea about how you're supposed to be to be a worthy human being. I got that through a series of times when my core needs were not met. And then I made up a story, sometimes based on feedback from the environment, from uh, people who weren't very wise. But I I made up the story that uh, I'm not worthy or I'm not lovable or something like that. And then what, what, what I like to teach people is, first you just start with the feeling of, ouch, something has me feeling whatever the word is, unworthy or not good enough, and just start with the bodily sensation and the feeling, and then stay with that, and open your breathing, open your heart to witness yourself in that feeling, and then if you just stay with the feeling, and you stay with the current thing that triggered you, and the current feeling, it'll often bring up an old memory the child who i'm thinking of one guy who uh, who dropped the pizza you know who dropped the pizza when the family was out at the because they, they let him hold it and he's like six years old and you know he just didn't have the coordination and everybody got mad at him and then he just started to collect evidence for the fact that he he's a, he's a screw up you know that he, he always he, he always screws things up and You know, he's still dealing with that, you know, as a 50 year old man. But now when his wife criticizes him and he feels that same thing, he can bring tenderness. He can have a memory of the six year old dropping the pizza and everyone criticizing him. And he can go, oh, oh, little guy, you know, I feel for you. you got the wrong idea of, you know, about yourself. And and so somehow having, sometimes remembering even an incident that wasn't like the core incident, but just something you can remember that's like when you were tender and young. And that, that helps me bring tenderness to the places where I've been wounded.
0: I feel really soft and open hearing that. Imagining in the story that you told, being so young, Mm -hmm. and and not having the coordination, as you say, Mm -hmm. and taking it on as a story, this evidence building. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that whatever story we want to validate in our head, we can find evidence that it's true. And so the opportunity is to tell the best story and then look for the evidence that supports that everything's good, that you are enough, that you are worthy of love and you do have something to offer the world and others. And then you go look for evidence that that's true.
1: We can do that consciously as adults. But if it doesn't work, because for some of us, conscious change also requires going down and looking at some of the unconscious resistances to making that shift, to collecting evidence that I am worthy. So if, there's, if, if you just can't seem to get there with conscious change, like what you're suggesting, um, you may have to befriend that inner child over and over and over every time you get triggered for a while, and until you really are more even about uh, shocks, let's say shocks to your system that are similar to those shocks that happened when you were young, young and impressionable. But then what you get, what you get, you're not looking for positive or negative, you just get that anytime anything comes to me that is painful or upsetting, I have this inner spacious presence, I call it the good mother archetype. I mean, it's Carl Jung, you know, not me, but it's a a wonderful thing to bring in. It's like, intentionally, I am gonna be a good mother for myself. I'm gonna reparent myself in a way that maybe I didn't get when I was in my family of origin. And every single one of us, Sherry, has a sense inside of us, no matter what kind of parents we had, we have a sense inside of us of what feels good and nurturing and what doesn't. So that says to me, we've all got the capacity to love ourselves in the right way.
0: Yes, please, more of that. So going back to the inner child and the places where we might have a memory of an experience and it's the origin for a story that we tell ourselves. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: In practicing some self-forgiveness. There was an exercise I remember that invited you to write down some things you don't like about yourself. Maybe even like a secret or something that you think is shameful or embarrassing about you. Maybe you write them down on a separate piece of paper, and then you turn them over on the back side. You write down a name of someone you love, someone you mm-hmm. admire, someone you're close to, a friend, a family member. And when you flip them back over again, imagine this experience being theirs. And what does that do? Does what does that do to your perception of them now? Does it change?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Can you, do you still love them? Do you still feel compassion for them? And that I did this exercise and I realized that I could turn that compassion, love and grace that I felt for them Mm -hmm. around and give it back to myself and kind of releasing me. Yeah. Good. And I'm imagining that, uh, that, you know, a lot about this exercise. (laughs)
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I've done different versions of it. One of them's in the Getting Real book called The Secrets Exercise. But that helps you re, kind of like reframe the way you've been seeing yourself. That's yeah, good exercise.
0: How did you know that you were done with the 10 true skills? That That there were 10, that in practicing these, you can have... You can live a more authentic life by practicing these 10 truth skills. Your your journey to to end there Mm. while you continued with books and your own stories of transformation and evolving, Uh but at some point you put a period at the end and you finish the last page Crafting
1: a book and deciding how much to put in this book, it, it, it's a it, it's a decision process. It's not really like this is the final word on how to live an authentic life. Because after that book, I wrote a few, you know, a few more books already. It's a good question that I haven't actually considered, Sherry. How did I just settle on the 10? I believe that I started with the idea of what gets in the way of people experiencing the reality of the moment to the fullest, or what are the things we need? Because I believe that life is about learning from experience, learning and growing and evolving. But in order to learn from experience, you have to be able to actually experience the moment and not be just in your head all the time. So how how do I help people? bring down and, and use, and I've always thought relationship is the crucible or the path for spiritual or personal evolution. I mean, that's that's been a thing I've taught. I wrote a book called The Couple's Journey back in 1980 that presented the idea of relationship as a path. And, and if you have two people interacting, that is one of the most powerful growth paths, much faster and more powerful than therapy, although, if you have therapy and, and a couple, then you then you really can move rapidly on the path. So back to getting real. So what do you need? Well, you need to be able to experience the moment. Okay, then you need, need to be able to you know, experience whatever's whatever's outside of yourself. And you need to know the difference between what you're actually seeing and what your mind does. So I was, I was trying to just build a ladder, actually, um, of like the most basic is you, you have you know you have to be present to win kind of thing, and then the next one was well you you have to be able to reveal more of yourself if if you're going to get accurate feedback from the environment you've got to reveal what's really there not something that um, is your act, and I'm not the first person who said most of this stuff but I just packaged it in a in a way that could be a curriculum, so okay. And then you need to really be curious about how you impact the environment. And so that's the third true skill. Uh, th- I think I called it thriving on feedback because to me, feedback loops is what helps all systems. I, I, I truly have an optimistic view of the world. If we could all like clean the lenses of our perception and get accurate feedback loops going, everything in the world is interdependent and we're get, if we could just give each other accurate feedback about what I really want and need and what I really can and can't give you, a simple thing like that, you know. I mean, the world would work. <laughs> I want a world that works for everybody. Okay, and, you know, and then I, you know, then I went on to asking for what you want because that's one of the hardest things to be transparent about, and so forth and so on. And then of course sometimes you screw up, so you have to be able to revise. That's going out and coming in again. And um, and then I began to get into the more advanced truth skills. Holding differences is very advanced, and and I care about the polarization in the world. I care about the split off parts of the person. Like you know, you, you're at war within yourself, and you know, being able to know your different parts and have all your parts listening to each other, because that that's necessary if, if you're going to have a coherent. Uh, relationship with anybody it's nice if all your parts are talking to each other and you're not at war within yourself yes I want to have sex tonight no I don't want to have sex tonight yes I want to marry you and I don't want to marry you I mean that's pretty confusing (laughs) to a relationship of course ambivalence (laughs) now I'm riffing here but of course ambivalence is a basic thing we all have to come to terms with too but being able to hold ambivalence in a, in a frame that says, like in the, one of the true skills is sharing mixed emotions. I wanna tell you the truth, but I'm afraid of how that might affect our relationship. So let me be very careful here, that type of thing. So I I, I just kind of walked myself through what it takes to have a growthful relationship that contributes to the healing of people and the earth. So the holding differences thing is we need to understand the dynamics of polarity. And um, I I won't, I won't riff too far on that right now. And then that, that last one about embracing silence was sort of like my, uh, my ultimate edge, you know, I told you in the beginning of our talk here, that it's sort of my growth edge, and I believe it's kind of the growth edge of the culture, because life is uncertain, the next moment is unknown. And if we can just feel into all the complexity, but not kind of knowing what's gonna come out of it, uh, I do believe that we can learn to not have to know too many steps ahead, uh, where is this all going? But trust ourselves in the moment to show up for the next moment. If I'm more present in this moment, I'll have I'll have more of my resources available for the next moment. And that's really what embracing silence is. It's just a, about like I call it surfing life. Like, like a surfer doesn't plan what he's going to do next. He's in total relationship with a constantly ever-changing, unknown, uncertain world. And so these are really capacities. You know, if you get to that last one, we're talking about capacities for coping with constant change. And, 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 diff- and then the holding differences is capacity for dealing with people who see the world very differently from yourself. And I think change and conflict are the, the big social challenges of our time. So I, I do try to put this in a bigger frame. That's getting real, true skills.
0: That is the most gorgeous, delicious summary. (laughs) I'm like, my jaw is open. I'm like making notes as you're (laughs) talking because I, I love your description, especially when you began by saying, I was building a ladder. Hmm. Like what's what step one and what step two, you know, must be present to win. So let's work on our awareness and what we're noticing, Mm -hmm. noticing when we're afraid, noticing when we're holding back, noticing when we're scared. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And never trying to deny fear. Because what we learned when when I trained to be a therapist, the biggest thing that therapists learn that I wish everybody would learn is don't fight resistance. Don't fight your fear. Inquire into your fear. Uh, it has a lot of information. And the more I've gone into this with the triggering work, you know, work on working on our own triggers, it's like trigger is a fear. And we don't want to say, well, don't have triggers. We want to say, what's the information in here? What's the need? What are you, what are you trying to tell me that I haven't been willing to look at about myself? Maybe there's a tenderness there that I have to honestly honor and say, "Gee, I can't hear that that kind of talk, or I can't be in a room with loud noises." You know, whatever it is, to honor what some some of those fears need to be uh, honored and leaned into, not overcome.
0: I hear that as an opportunity to not judge yourself. Mm-hmm. To To find the thing that's holding you back and name the fear itself and then, and then be with it, acknowledge it, comfort it, hold it. Yeah. And do you think that by being willing to see it for what it is, that it starts to soften and dissolve a little?
1: Oh, yes, because really, it's just part of your conditioning. It's part of your faulty learning. It isn't your true self. All these fears about ourselves are stories. I call them fear stories in in the in the book Five Minute Relationship Repair. I I like people to use the word fear story when we're talking about a story. And so much, so many of our fears are, um, like you said earlier, it's and they become a magnet. You know, a story we tell ourselves then becomes a magnet or a filter that we filter all our other uh, experiences through, and um, we can we can question that and undo that filtering process and just feel the fear underneath the story and don't you don't have to believe the story comfort the hurting one and know that because you had this powerful experience as a child you may not ever totally get rid of the pain associated with these triggers but you'll be able to go oh there it is again i what might take you like a 15 minute process of self inquiry that's usually about how long it actually takes for me to guide somebody through this and now i you know i would do it my own my own self after a triggering episode now i can just touch my chest and remember the little infant that was afraid that nobody was going to come and pick her up and i can just feel so tender toward her and the the pain dissolves into self-love and self-compassion
0: which is so in need
1: yeah yeah because we you know if we want to solve the problems of the world it's back to back to being better humans we can't shrink our world to fit this tiny little comfort zone and and so many of us do you know that's one of the reasons we lie sugarcoat and pretend is to stay comfortable and to at least get the illusion that you're in control. Because uh, when you start interacting with reality, uh, it's, pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to feel in control. <laughs> you're, you're in dialogue, you're in synergy, but you're not in control. So we, um, we learn that we don't need control when we know how to relate.
0: Mm-hmm. That lands. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Uh When I read the part about, are you communicating to control or are you communicating to relate? I saw patterns Uh um, in my marriage that, that failed. And I was very attached to the outcome that I wanted from a given interaction. Uh And I could see how I would communicate to control. And I don't like the way that sounds. I would much rather be able to say that I read that chapter and felt like, oh yeah, I communicate to relate. Well, I'm practicing that now. Mm -hmm. But I could see the part that I needed to own of, of my experience and my part of the relationship that was dysfunctional is that I wasn't looking to relate to the experience that he was having. I was looking to have to either be right or to have an outcome match my expectations. And that just got me in trouble over and over again. Actually, it got me disappointed Um. over and over again. And who was actually doing the disappointing? If my partner was exactly who he said he was, pretty consistently, Mm -hmm. I was setting myself up to fail by wanting more from a situation or wanting something different other than what he was prepared to give. And you know what happens? So
1: if you had learned back then, you had learned back then to inquire, I know you know how to do this now, Sherry, but to inquire into maybe his answer to you that wasn't exactly the answer you were hoping for, to, you know tell me more about why you feel that way or just something like that you probably would have been able to handle his answer but you were afraid you couldn't handle the answer does that ring a bell at all
0: ding 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 oh, I mean,
1: so sometimes we just have to take a risk to and and Big risk is inquire into my own resistance. Inquire into the other person's resistance. If that's if that's the frame we're talking about here, you want one thing and he wants something else. If you inquire into that, all of a sudden you've just let go of control, <laughs> and and you've got a new kind of control, which is your is relating, which is much a much more powerful stance. All of a sudden I go, oh, I can hear that. I didn't realize I can hear that. And it it, it totally hurts when I hear that, but I can, that's the part though. That's when we go to triggers again, it might totally hurt. And we might have to learn a little more about soothing our own hurts. So I'm just kind of correcting myself here. There might be a little more work in there Mm. um, for some of us.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that for any of our listeners who, you know, are wanting to see how this might relate for them or show up in their life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what I heard in the example you you just shared is I saw myself freezing and withdrawing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, without the skill, without the skill of being with the thing that hurts to hear. Mm-hmm. I remember my tendency would be to freeze and withdraw.
1: And And to be able to admit that to yourself.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And is it, is it kind of worthy? Can you still be a worthy human being when you sometimes freeze and withdraw when you hear bad news?
0: I know the answer is yes. And yet there is a critic that shows up that um, I have to put on the boxing gloves, you know, a little bit. Um, the fight's getting less bloody uh-huh. as time goes on and I'm learning to be more generous mm-hmm. with myself when I recognize these things.
1: Well, I wanna normalize what you're saying because uh, I teach coaches, you know, I do these coach trainings and I teach people about accepting your trigger reactions and accepting that you can be a worthy human being and still freeze and flood and all the rest. And then I'll say, you know, we've been, you know, we've been through part of this course now, and you know the right answer that it's good to accept triggers, but how many people still feel shame when you realize you've gotten triggered and everybody raises their hand? And these are pretty sophisticated people like yourself. You know? And so it's not easy to get through this. I may, I may teach it, I'm a little older than most of you. I had a, quite an advantaged childhood in certain ways even though I had some, some challenges. And um, so I might make it sound a little easier but I, I really want people to realize that uh, there's work here. But it's doable work.
0: Yeah, it is doable work. And I think it begins this idea of outing yourself. So something you said in your summary of um, how did you come up with the 10 and you were building the ladder. Mm-hmm. When you said, I want to share something with you, but I'm afraid. hmm. That to me is the ultimate reveal of Mm -hmm. present moment awareness, of acknowledging that there's something important and that you feel vulnerable and a little tender. You're conscientious about how it might land. and, And even going so far as to say, is this the right time and space for it? Right. You know, creating that set and setting. You know, right before you said that that I want to share, but I'm afraid, you were talking about, um, you know, asking for what you want and why is it so hard, mm-hmm. and what are we afraid of? And as I as I kind of check those questions that come up so often, like what is in the way of us revealing more of ourselves, I often come back to uh, Dr. Kabor Mate's teaching on attachment versus authenticity.
1: So say more about what you mean there or what you
0: said. So what I mean there is our desire to have belonging, a -hmm. sense of belonging to to fit in, to be with the people in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the core wound that you shared Mm -hmm. about um, your experience in the crib and how that led you to become a young person desiring attention. Yeah. So the need to fit in and belong that we will let go of being a fully self-expressed individual mm-hmm. to fit into a set of circumstances because that need is greater yeah. than being fully self-expressed in, a, in an honest and open way. So what that looks like for me in addressing my core wound is that idea that I told myself a story that I was too much, Mm -hmm. that in order to fit in with my family, I needed to contain myself, to be smaller, to not be so loud. Okay, so you do what you need to do in the moment Mm -hmm. to survive, whatever your version of surviving looks like, given the way that you were raised. So you do what you need to do to survive. At some point, you become an adult. Mm -hmm. And who's there to teach us? You know, you referred to kind of unlearning. Yeah. A couple of times today. Mm-hmm. And like, how, how, do we, how do we get there? How do we get there sooner? How do we get to that unlearning sooner where we get to take off? Okay, I don't need to survive anymore in someone else's story. Yeah. Well, it would be nice
1: if we could work more often say is is this behavior meeting an actual need that i have now this toning myself down you know i'm imagining that you then probably learn to tone yourself down a little is that right yes at times At times yeah well some people who had your story would learn to tone themselves down and you know not be the first to speak in a group and stuff like that you know hang back a little okay not not sharing but um so you then you go well is this is this is this getting me what i really want and so again you might need to do little personal check-ins at the end of the day am i am i truly being my authentic self here and then if you just give yourself enough feedback around questions like that you will gradually go, you know, that pattern worked then. I mean, we can read this in books, and so there's a lot of self-help about this. But life could teach you this if you were really paying attention. Jeez, uh, I don't need to tone myself down. My husband loves me loud and big and needy. You know, I was taught, don't be needy. Don't be high maintenance. Well, geez, you know, it's that. That was that was then. This is now. And if people could just keep asking, you know, that might have been then, but is it now? So the, the, well, feedback from life will teach you everything that you need to know. But listening to podcasts, reading books, and so forth will help you get there faster.
0: <laughs> what a perfect way to close. A reminder to listen to podcasts and read books. And, and be with right now. Mm -hmm. use use your life as information use your feelings as information
1: yeah take advantage of all the feedback loops that you're a part of here and now now that will teach you how to deal with the complexity of the way reality really is because that's our next developmental task as humanity is dealing with more complexity than our brains have been trained to handle up to the up to now but we can we can keep evolving.
0: Here's hoping.
1: <laughs> I hope I live to see it.
0: <laughs> I do too. Thank you for your time today.
1: Oh, it was lovely being with you, Sherry. It's
0: been a true gift. Hmm. And that's another episode of Pink Noise. Thanks for listening. I'm still in shock that I had a conversation with Susan Campbell (laughs) and talking about life as a surfer, experiencing the moment and not predicting what's going to happen next. So with that in mind, I'll leave you in suspense about next week's guest. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within.